Greetings, and thanks for tuning in to Broken Boxes podcast. In this episode, recurring host and artist Chnupahanska Luger gets into conversation with Joseph M. Pierce, a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and an associate professor at Stony Brook University, where he teaches and researches about queer studies, indigenous studies, and Latin American studies. Joseph is also a writer and an artist who often collaborates with other queer, trans, and two-spirit indigenous kin on curation and performance work. In this conversation, Joseph and Chinupa speak about the points of connection within community through time, focusing on the realms of storytelling and speculative fiction that weave us together in continuum. Hi, Joseph. Hi. It's been a spell. No. Well, I miss you guys. I'm, I I was thinking about the last time we saw each other in New York, and um, that seems like so long ago, but... I know. I know. Um, Joseph Pierce, hello. Hi. Uh, uh, this is the Broken Boxes podcast, and I we are very excited to talk to you today. There are aspects of your practice, my practice, other people's practice. These are these kind of like intersectional spaces and clumsy spaces that we can navigate. So I would love to have uh, you introduce yourself in the way that you like to be introduced. And um, and then we'll dive in from there. Well, um, thank you for, for having me. I want to um, introduce myself in Cherokee language first, and then I'll say something something else. Corpus Christi, Dike, Gasseno, Novo Brooklyn, Janelle, Stony Brook, Galuladilla, Janelle Squad, Daliusta, Nejo. My name is Joseph Pierce. I'm a citizen of Cherokee Nation, and I am an associate professor at Stony Brook University, where I teach and research about um, queer studies, indigenous studies, and Latin American studies, broadly speaking. And I'm also uh, I collaborate with a lot of with a lot of other queer and two spirit and trans indigenous kin among them S J Norman and I co curate the series Knowledge of Wounds and I've also recently been working with Devin Emery um, a Lenape artist here in Lenape Hooking on a few performance projects which has been really exciting and humbling. Um, and so, yeah, I'm a writer and a collaborator, and um, I I try to be a good listener too. <laughs> yeah, so that's a little bit about me. Awesome. Well, Docha Managua. Hello, my friend. I'm really interested in some of this um, kind of recent writing you've done. Um, and correct me if I pronounce this uh, incorrectly, but Dionisi, Dionisi, Dionisi. Mm-hmm. Um, Dionysi's turn. Uh, I, I have been working in indigenous futurism, and I know that you also work in that in that space. And I would love to open up a conversation um, because I have had a couple of of recent conversations around futurism and science fiction, and however we want to label these things. And I'm kind of interested in in your perspective around 
what futurism means to you as as an indigenous person because i know i i struggle with some of these kind of like external western terms like i'm happy to utilize them um because they are uh, uh beginning to open up these conversations but i recognize the shortcoming of um some of these terms in a indigenous kind of like time sense that time travels in multiple directions not just this forward linear one so i'm kind of i'm kind of interested to hear what you have to your insight on that and also just you know tell us more about um dionysi's turn and in relationship to uh futurism indigenous kind of um uh grounding in what time means uh i think that's a really interesting and useful insight for the larger kind of western world and consumer world and economic world that we also exist in so please share your gift uh i i love these questions um i think that time is one of the most exciting things that that indigenous people are working with today and whether that's time-based performance art or time based theorizings or storytellings there's a lot that's going on that has to do with with time and i i think that we're finally coming around to a sense of how our own indigenous epistemologies are based in um multiple temporalities or temporalities that are thicker um or more interesting uh, than linear settler uh capitalist time you know one of the things that i have been trying to do recently is you know i'm i'm working on a a longer book manuscript that i'm tentatively calling speculative relations and that idea of of speculation is also about a gesture with time and as time so when we speculate um we're thinking about the future but we're also thinking about that future always as part of an emergent um relationality with the past and so one one thing that i definitely want to talk about now and and a little bit later maybe is is this term ancestral future or futurity i think that's something that um is really can really condenses a lot of of what people are thinking about today but the 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 guiding story for this book that i'm trying to write is about dionysi and dionysi is the water beetle in the cherokee cosmology and the story kind of goes that there were all the animals were on living on the turtle's back and there was no land it was only water so the turtle was floating in the middle of the water and all of the animals were getting crowded there wasn't enough space and so they were trying to figure out what to do and so they held a council and some of the animals decided they would try to go find the the, the land but none of them could find any land until the water beetle volunteered and and water beetle dove to the bottom of this primordial ocean and very at the very bottom was able to find a speck of land and bring it back up to the surface and that that mud spread and became turtle island right 
Um, there are similar stories in other communities. In in you know, in some communities, it's a muskrat as opposed to a water beetle. But one one thing that I really love about this story that I think gets overlooked is that Dionysi water beetle is characteristically a liminal figure, mm -hmm. is able to exist on water and uh, on land, uh, dives to the bottom of, of the ocean and comes back to the surface. And so one thing that I've been trying to do is think with Dionysi as a method. And I think that that foregrounds liminality, non-binariness. I'm not sure that that's exactly the right word because I think we may have you know different words, but for now, non-binary. Um, they're an anomalous being uh, in, in the sense that Daniel Heath Justice, who's another Cherokee scholar, uh, describes. And so Dionysi, Di Dionysi's turn is a turn, the turn at the very bottom of the ocean when they, when they grab the, the mud and turn to bring it back up. And I like to think of that as a gesture of futurity. And so in that gesture, we're talking about remembering the community and doing something for the community to help the community. That's also, you're also not sure how it's, if it's gonna work, um, and so the, it's, the spe <laughs> it's speculative, right? I think this is going to help. Um, and so for me, the, the thing about Dionysi is that it's a gesture of futurity. And if that is how the world is made, then we have to really pay more attention to futurity because it seems to me like if these are our original instructions, right? Like this is the origin of the world, then futurity tethered to the ancestral is actually part of our understanding of how the world was made, what is at the center of our understandings of community and, and how we relate to, um, to other beings. So I, I, that's for me, the guiding sort of through line for, for what I'm trying to do in, in this sort of broader research project. But it, it again deals with thinking not in binary terms, but in, in terms of relational uh, dynamics. Um, and I think that is, is temporal, but it's also like interpersonal or interbeing, uh, interdimensional. Yeah. Um, you know? Yeah. I also like the, um, like Dionysus' turn, that there's also, and this is me just, you know, grasping at, um, uh, how I kind of first received and uh, the understanding before I talked to you was, you know, I, I, I tend to kind of like ask the question whenever I meet other indigenous people, like, what's your creation story? Like, where are you from? I'm really interested in that first lesson as well. And there are correlations even with my tribe, Mandan and um, uh, Hidatsa kind of creation stories, but Mandan, Specifically, we have, we come from Sky World, but there is this moment where the, the earth is covered in water and our li liminal creature was of the duck family. It's never specific, you know, but it's like of the duck family, which is also this, this liminal character. I mean, it lives on land, in the sky and in the water. And it was a duck 
species that was prone to diving, you know? So it was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to enter into a place where everything that I am is, I have to hold it. I have to hold my breath in order to do this. But it's, it's a really similar story where it is a gathering of mud at the bottom and bringing that back to the surface, multiplying that and, and creating landmass out of that, out of that narrative. But to go back to Dionysus turn, I love the, um, I love that these are many different species collaborating, you know, and working together, that their community isn't limited to just the beetles, you know, but all, all of these species and that they had made and like each one had, a, you know, tried, like, let me, let me speculate on how to find earth, do whatever it is. And it wasn't until Dionysus turn, you know, like their turn to, to go out and sacrifice for everybody to, uh, speculate on what and how our future can exist. So I love that too. Like I never thought of that initial turn at the base where you return to community. Like it's one thing to go out. It's something else entirely to, to turn and come back and, and, and help. And I think that's a, that's a really interesting insight, especially in like the 21st century for indigenous people, like leaving reservation, getting educated, doing all of this sort of stuff. When do we turn? When do we bring back to our community or supply for a community? Even if it's not a return to the land itself, how do we turn and provide something to grow from for everybody else? That's absolutely it. I mean, there, there's another, one of the things I really love about some of our foundational stories is that they involve, Cherokee stories specifically involve kind of unassuming uh, animal relatives. So the water beetle is not like the flashy, you know, the flashiest, uh, and, and they're kind of, they're, they're easily overlooked, but, and yet they're crucial to the survival of everyone. And another, another story like this is about how we got fire. Um, and that comes from, again, another liminal figure, which is a water spider. So it's another Mm -hmm. animal who can walk on water. And so all of the animals try to go get fire and none of them succeed until the water spider has the ingenuity and also the like core part of who they are to be able to make a basket with their uh, Mm -hmm. spider web and go and get a piece of coal from where the fire is and bring it back to where uh, the rest of the the animals are and, and humans. And so it's only by going and returning, but using the, the, the essence, I think, of who you are or the, the thing that makes you who you are at the service of the community that allows the community to thrive. Mm. You know, in the creation stories, in the creation story for, for Cherokee, there's no humans yet, right? Humans aren't, aren't created yet. Um, and so all of this happens without human insight or, or agency or anything. Um, and the fire humans aren't able to get the fire. It's only because of water spider. And again, it's another liminal being who can walk on water. And I think that these stories for me, like they allow me to, to think about mutual responsibilities which are at the heart of what it means to be a good relative. All of these stories are about what it means to be a good relative, but the stories about being a good relative kind of involve 
leaving the community for a second and then coming back, leaving to go dive to the bottom of the ocean and then coming back or leaving to go across another body of water to an island, which is where the fire was, and then coming back. And so um, I think today it's, and I, I, this is really also about who I am as a person, right? Like I, I need these stories because they help me relate to Cherokee community because I didn't grow up in Cherokee community. I don't think it's, it's, it's surprising. It shouldn't be that Mm -hmm. I find in these stories, something that actually helps me think about what it means to return to community because I wasn't raised in, in community because, you know, my father was adopted by a white family and he grew up outside of Cherokee community. And so all of this has been a long process of uh, connection and rebuilding kinship. But, you know, that also means that it's intentional and there's a a kind of humility that uh, you have to like, learn from the very beginning from the stories themselves, right? That's, that's one thing that I, that I, I think one of the advantages to me being a literary scholar is that I'm, I'm also able to like look at stories from multiple perspectives and be a little creative with the stories. And maybe like traditional people may not (laughs) appreciate that, or maybe they would, I don't know. But um, that, that has been one of the really beautiful things for me in attempting to make sense of my own place, my place as a queer person, my place as an indigenous person, my place as uh, a person who is disconnected and connected again, like diasporic in a sense too. All of that is really important. And the stories actually have, they make room for that if you look for it. Yeah, no, I think that's really important because you're also not, that's that's true for most of us as indigenous people as a population you know there is displacement was a tool that was used you know coming to come to the americas was an effort of displacement to gain the power that settler colonial communities had was a a process of displacement and so the tools that they use to uh, take land control all of these things this is efforts of displacement and a lot of indigenous people most indigenous people sadly, are also in that same position. And oftentimes from like traditional communities or, or even just like reservation life, there is a, um, there's a learned toxicity to, to uh, receiving your relatives who have been displaced, who may not have grown up within their homelands, you know, or anything along those lines. And as you said, in our oldest stories, there is an acknowledgement of uh, transformation and movement and sacrifice. Oftentimes it's limited to a timescale that works for a good story, but that story is a lesson for much longer movements of time. And I think that's what's the most important thing about looking at our, our older stories and reinterpreting them, especially if you come from oral traditions, you know, if these things are not written down, the story has to be good. That's the only way you'll remember it and be able to tell it. And every time you tell it, it changes a little bit, you know, it changes a little bit. And over time, you end up with this, this story that makes sense to us now. And I think interpreting these, these older kind of creation stories, 
I can guarantee you the most traditional person alive today is telling a story that has been changed um, and, and acknowledging that kind of, once again, this is like a look into the temporality of what community means, what culture means, you know, and, and the speculation allows flux. It'll, it, it's built into the model that it can like morph and shift and change and adapt to how, what we need today. You know, so I, I do really like that. I mean, there's there's one thing I'll, I would like to say about that is is the idea of flux only seems antithetical to indigeneity if we take the perspective of settlers who are looking for a sort of authentic Indian who is fossilized in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, our own stories are actually m- much more invested in movement, shifting, transformation, crossing expanses and dimensions. There's another story, you know, I, um, another story about how the pine tree was made and it was a group of children who were dancing and they danced so much that they became the Pleiades constellation. And one of them fell down and became the pine tree. And so the pine tree is the relative of the stars and grows in a sense to like, I think of it, to reattach to the stars. And so the, the idea, and I, I think if, if we think of this in a non-metaphorical way, is that the tree is the relative of the star and we are the relative of the tree and the star. And, and there's a, a, a speculation there, right? A trying to look out towards the stars that's not, uh, not foreign to our stories and teaches us about transformation that are, that's really at the heart of, um, all of the lessons that we, that are part of our traditions, you know, like yeah. the traditions are about flux. They're not about stagnasis. Totally. I also love that. Like, it's also not metaphorical. It yeah. is absolutely true. Like the, the, the shape that the pine tree takes pointing to the stars is a constant reminder that guess what? That tree is star stuff. And so are we like at an atomic level, the, the whole process of colonization and this idea of like moving and building and making sure that we are a part of like new worlds and space travel and all this sort of stuff. I'm like, dude, we're there. (laughs) We're if you're not, if you can let go of how these uh atoms have like uh chosen form if you can let go of that we're everywhere we're already there (laughs) that's that it's so funny because it's like people will talk about speculative fiction or space travel or time travel as as if it were a fantasy but in in truth we're we're currently time and space traveling we're currently covered in stardust. That's that's a physical reality, and we are the 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 components that emerged billions of years ago. And we're like our bodies have all this radiation that's coming. I mean, it's like we are it right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where are you going? We're here. <laughs> I love I love the power of that. Just I mean, it's it's funny because even in the empirical science kind of models they are coming closer to understanding the relationality of even the particle, you know, like the, at the atomic level, 
You've got these little bits and there's so much focus on these little bits. And um, the reality is most of the universe, as we understand it, is made up of relationship. It's made up of, of these interactions. And so as soon as you can relax your gaze and be like, oh, no, no, I can, tra- I, I am. It's not that I can, it's that I am transmitting this relationship just by being here, just by being a, a, a chosen form. I am also related to everything else. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like when you accept that or the the acceptance i think is 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 sort of like accepting what is actually real it's it's impossible for you not to be related to all of these things in in a kind of physical and um like in like a physics kind of way like yeah. it's it's actually more illogical to think that you are not related to these things than it is to think that you are related to these things <laughs> Totally, totally. And I think this is also one of the, you know, fundamental purposes of creative folks, artists, what, however you want to kind of describe this, is um, how do you inform the populace in a way that makes that so desirable that you can shape the, the way we think about ourselves. And so I think the, the imaginative space, the creative space, creation itself, you're a participant in that. And right now our focus is on how we think about ourselves because the physics of it is already, already true. <laughs> can I, um, so can I, there's a term, so I want to go back to ancestral futurity. I mean, I think this is yes. a term, this is a term that I, have heard in some kind of different contexts and and SJ uh, Norman and I have had a couple discussions about this in terms of our collaborative curatorial practice. And I think there there are probably different genealogies because it, it seems to me like each indigenous community has its own understanding of what ancestral futurity is. So I actually wanted to ask you how you sort of came to that term or how, how, what ancestral futurity means to you? Yeah. Well, I think once again, just from a semantic standpoint, it blurs that idea of linear time. For me, that's what I, you know, the projects that I work on, I call future ancestral technology. And I was really thinking, it, it's funny because it started more so as, as, at the term of technology, more than future ancestral, like future for ancestral futurity for me is an acknowledgement of time traveling, not in a, in a straight line, but in both directions simultaneously. Um, and this goes back to just my, how I was raised and my understanding around what the seven generations conversation was. Yeah. Um, I've heard it in many different interpretations of what seven generations is and like, and that, at, you know, in some of them, you're at the beginning of that and seven generations forward is this is this kind of point to focus your attention. But how I was raised is that you're in the center of that seven, that the only reason you're here now is because of the care and effort of your parents, your grandparents, and probably grandparents you have never met. Like that's that's one direction of accountability is yeah. towards towards the past and your ancestors. And then because of all of that, you're here now, but you're not just here now. You have to take into account and once again, be accountable to your children, 
your children's children, and children you may never meet. And so your existence in time is not here now, but in both directions, three generations beyond actually physically being able to communicate with them and acknowledging that you put in motion that communication. I think it's a a sense of accountability to time that would be so important for our present to understand what it means to be not just accountable to each other presently and all of the kids and relationships that we have right now, but also through time that you're accountable to these kind of things. So ancestral futurity for me or future ancestral is looking, is acknowledging that the time travels in both directions, that because you're here now, you're present actually radiates in, in yeah. both directions and creates wakes in, in both directions as you yeah. navigate through through this like linear concept of time. Yeah. But I came to that point because I was interested in technology mm-hmm. and um, the, the definitions of technology presently, not as they're truly defined, but as how the populace in general understands it, is focused primarily in mechanism, you know? This is a me- this is not tech. This is a this is a mechanism. This is not technology. This is a mechanism for technology. And the the thing that I find so profoundly beautiful about it is this is designed for communication. Yeah. I'm like that's as old as bird songs. That's older than that. Probably bug chirps, you know, or some other sound, some earth sound, thunder, uh, uh, the eruption of a volcano. These communicate information. And that's what this does. I'm like, how far have we come? You know, we've developed a mechanism that makes it easier and broader and amplifies it. But the technology is very, very old. And so I like to think about technology as an idea and that within indigenous cosmologies, there are embedded technology that we oftentimes are not like as green economies are developing presently, there is very little acknowledgement of the source of that technology. And I keep seeing things where I'm like, dude, your green economy is a reinterpretation, a repackaging of very old ideas that worked for a very long time. And guess what? If you just acknowledged where you gleaned that information from, it would be much a much stronger understanding of... Um, how to apply and what it means to apply. And once again, you know, moving towards an indigenousness, not just to region, but to globe, planet, you know, cosmos. So that's kind of my, my direction. Uh, inform me any contradictions or increase. No, I, to the listener, Chanupa was holding his telephone. Uh, mm, thank you. <laughs> that that was li- yeah, yeah. For the listeners, um, well, I I think that one of the, the one of the things I really identified with is being in the middle of a radiating of a of a radiating circle um, sphere, perhaps. And and if you think about it, when Dionysi emerges from the sea, they have to have created waves. And I have to also imagine that those waves are still ongoing, hmm. that we are currently experiencing still the waves that were created when the world was formed. That gives you a sense of scale that is incommensurable with Western 
understandings of place and temporality. And secondly, I think we also have in Cherokee tradition, this idea of, of thinking about and with the seven generations in the past and the seven generations in the future. And, you know, I, I did the math one time and for me, seven generations in the past is, is the generation that was removed on the trail of tears. Hmm. So it's when we think, when you think about it like that, then it's not actually that far away. And you are very directly tied to the colonial violence and genocide that your ancestors survived in order for you to exist as you do today. If that was only seven generations ago, then it's not too much to, to like imagine your relationship with that as something that is still ongoing because it is. And then another thing that I, that I learned, you know, I'm a, I'm not, by any stretch of the imagination, a Cherokee language speaker, but I, I have tried and I continue to learn, you know, bits and pieces little by little. Um, but one of the things I learned recently was that the word that we have for center, so we have the seven directions, we have an above and a below, and then we have a, a center, which is ayehli, which is also where you are now. So where you are now is both a place and a time, right? where you are now. And that word is also the word that is used to describe the Cherokee nation itself. So Chalagi Ayahli is where we are now, Cherokee nation. And I think that that's really interesting as a, because it's a connection of space time together, but also community. And so it's, it's I, to me, it's indicating that um, the center of you is also part of the center of we, and there's a radiating out uh, generationally. And I think one thing that I would that I would kind of add to this is 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 not necessarily biological. This generational sort of thinking it it may also be kind of it's actually relational. It's the relational thinking that allows me to to posit my actions as linked to a future seventh generation because like, I'm, you know, not likely to have kids, but like still there's going to be a future there that I am responsible to and that my actions are, are hopefully aimed at uh, sustaining and, and giving life and sustenance and support for like, but all of that comes from where I am now. So where I am now is crucial to me understanding this groundedness, how I'm related to the seven generations in the past and how my actions inform what's going to happen in the next seven generations. Yeah, I really do like the kind of reference to uh, awake and ripples and, um, and current because that does actually help me better describe the relationality of not just genetic input, but also all of their peers, everything else that's alive in those things. And it does create these kind of like 
rippling rings. So it's, it also blurs that linear thing because it puts it into three dimensions and four dimensions of, of traveling in, in, in a radiant sphere versus a radiant uh, line. Because I think that's true. Like, once again, how, how your people describe themselves as, as now, we now, you, whether or not you're going to reproduce genetically, the information, the care, the knowledge that's shared from person to person is carried through generations. So every child into the future is our children, you know, yeah. because we are present now. Every grandparent back is also. And then to further even blur that, that thing is like, how far does that connect? And what is our ancestral relationships to oppression and, and all of this, you know, kind of trauma that has happened historically, presently, and probably futurely? And how is that also like uh, the prickliest point of relationality? It's kind mm -hmm. of fascinating. I think the, one of the things that you were saying about ancestral futurity and, and technology was striking to me because you were sort of saying that the the instrument is almost incidental to the method of uh, futurity. Um, the The technology is communication. Uh, and the communication, in my mind, is actually more of a method than it is an output. You know, like you you communicate, but but in most indigenous communities, the the praxis is as important or more important than the sort of outcome, the how you do the thing. So it seems to me like uh, future ancestral technologies is, is not so much about the creation of things as it is the emergence of doings that may create things, but, but it, it is in the enactment of our systems of care that 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 those futures are created and sustained. Does that make sense? Yeah, I you know a lot of my work because I am an object maker. Like I acknowledge that I am I am embedded in a productive making of things. It's literally my medicine. I like making things. So there is something that there there is a. a you know, it's, it's a thing that I'm constantly running into, like, what, wh wh why, what is this? Thing? <laughs> What's the point of this thing? You know, especially once I started working with clay, because clay was a very physical object that I acknowledged that here, I have a ball of it here that I'm going to show up to the screen just so everybody knows. Here is a pinch pot. It's a, it's a, it's a ball of clay. It hasn't been fired yet. So right now, this is limitless potential. I, I can crush this, turn it back into clay, make a dozen, a, a thousand, a, a million, a billion different things unless I fire it. If I fire it, I've transformed uh, at, the, at the physical level it into something else. It goes through a thing at about, you know, with all of these other natural forces, this is, this is earth, this is water, and applying fire to this thing transforms it from clay into a crystalline structure. It, it goes through what's called quartz inversion. So the quartz in this creates like a lattice work and it fundamentally transforms the material. And then it can only be this and then broken versions of this into the future. The potential of molding it and sculpting it and for generations into the future to be anything else. I, I, 
I carry the weight of knowing what it means to fire a piece of clay. You know, I'm like, wow, I've just ended all of the potential of this to be something. So it better be something good. You know, <laughs> I think about that all the time. And then once it is something, I love a vessel, you know, and I'm like, and I love that a vessel is not limited to, and I'm going to pull up another visual cue um, that I'm going to describe. This is a representation of our customary cooking pots. This is Mandan design function. This has not been passed on from generation to generation. This has been lost for a long time because of colonization, because of uh, uh, pandemic, you know, primarily pandemic. Smallpox Mm -hmm. took this away from us because it wasn't shared from generation to generation. And yet the clay remembered, you know, Mm -hmm. and through the clay, I could also remember by having visual cues and to also remember what it's for, not what it is, but what it's for. So this piece wasn't done until me and my family cooked some corn soup in it and ate out of it. I was like, it's not enough just to be a representation of a pot. This, this is just an object until this feeds us, then its purpose is justified. You know, the transformation of clay into a pot placed back on the fire to cook food, to share with your community, then you've completed it. You know, now, now it was, you've put more in than you've taken out of your, of your universe. Can I, that to me feels more like a prayer. Mm. It feels like that, that, um, you're creating a prayer that is held in the form of a vessel that allows you to commune with family. And sure, it's an object, but its objectness is less, its form is perhaps less important. No, I don't know if I want to go there, actually. Its form, its form is shaped by the communicative possibilities that you invest in it as a vessel and in the making of it as a vessel. I don't know if that's the same thing, but I, I, um, that was like me trying to be a stupid, um, academic for a second. Hold on. Yeah, but no the thing is, I am not <laughs> academic. So there are, there are, like, I keep thinking, like, what does that word mean? You know, what? and you're doing a really great job of, of <laughs> describing the terminology. Um, so that's super helpful. We keep that in mind. Like, it, it, it is a space. But the thing I actually wanted to say was, <laughs> I know I sometimes, one of the things that I like to ask people are about their tattoos. And I, I have a tattoo on my arm that is of a pottery design Mm. and it is in the in the southeast sort of traditions we have uh i don't know exactly the technical terms but it's like paddles a paddle like a wood paddle yeah that you imprint we we did totally yeah so um you would make the clay, you would make the, the, you would shape the clay and then you would imprint the design. Well, I guess first you would have to create the design in reverse on a piece of wood and then you would imprint it around the clay, right? Yeah. And then you would fire it. Um, so what I 
one of the things that I felt really drawn to was this image of uh, sun circles that I had tattooed on my arm. And it it's hard to explain, but I remember when I was getting this done, it, it took a long time because each line was drawn individually, right? Like, and so it took a long time. There's a, there are, they're like, I don't know, 15 or 16 lines for each sun. And um, it made me feel like I was becoming clay in that mm. sense. And I didn't expect that. I, I knew that I was drawn to this image. I knew that I wanted something that was part of the sort of ancestral, um, you know, Mississippian Cherokee iconography. But I remember sitting there on the table and just being like, this person is, is turning my arm into a piece of clay. And that is ancestral futurity. I don't know. Like that's, it's something that, that connects me, that connects my body to other bodies that are, that I can, that I can never know them personally, you know, like those ancestors, I will never know personally, but I can commune with them in a way by imprinting the thing that they imprinted on pots on my own body and thus sort of turning my own body into a thing that could have been shaped by those hands. Well, this is a, this is a great segue because now <laughs> you're a pot. I'm and, a pot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what is the, you know, it's not the form of the pot. It's yeah. what, pot, how the pot gives continuous to its community. And I am interested in, um, now that you're a pot, how do you feed your community? You know, what is it, you, now that you are vessel, what is it that you're carrying and who is your community? It, you, you know, having a, a indigenous urban experience, the multiplicity of cultural knowledge that's brought into these places through displacement, through economic growth, through all of these different things. How, how do you feed? Um, before I dive into that, though. Uh, oh, there's a paddle. Yeah, I'm showing him a paddle right now or showing them a paddle. And this paddle I made and the grooves on it are literally the design is a part of the function. The outside of the pot having uh, more surface area area than the interior of the pot. Not only is it aesthetically pleasing, but from a cooking standpoint, you get a much more even uh, heating surface because uh -huh. it's catching all of this heat as it's moving up. And I think that that's something that's really beautiful, that even design is yeah. has purpose and function. It's not just aesthetic. So that's yeah, that's totally it. I think I think that the yeah, now that I'm a pot, um, <laughs> can, maybe that's the title of this episode. Now that I'm a pot. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Or vessel, you know, now that whatever. I'm a vessel. Well, but, but we talk about that, right. I've actually never, until you said that, um, I have tried to articulate what, what I think that means, but calling myself a vessel is both uh, true in a, in a sense of being a carrier of stories, love, care, secrets, uh, you know, like memories, future, future dreams. And also it means that I'm not only for myself, 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm not just an object for myself. I am, I am a, a vessel is, is, I guess, I guess in our way, a vessel is for communal sharing, for understanding as community. Maybe, you know, maybe we're all vessels in, in, in a sense, but if we are all vessels, we, we connect by virtue of our need for each other as carriers of some piece of knowledge or of um, care or, or some piece of community that we bring, it seems to me. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking even like, you know, a pot filled with all of these other relatives, corn, squash, meat, water, you know, left without community does not feed anything. And it's still just the object itself. The demand of us, our, our, our need actually completes the, the piece, you know? So it wasn't even cooking something inside of it that completed it. It was the, the satiation of hunger, the um, production of energy for future, you know, things. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of knowledge in a, in a, in a vessel full of stew. <laughs> I tell you what, I've, I love that. I cook, I mean, I cook a lot. I mean, I, I, my partner doesn't cook, bless his soul. Um, but I, so I do all the cooking and this is really resonating with me as um, someone who, you know, I, I wish I took more time in the kitchen. Sometimes I'm busy and I'm like, okay, I got to but also I'm really good at just seeing what we have in the fridge and like turning something out really quick, which is also a skill and, and yeah. requires care, like, and creativity, you know? Yeah. So what ways are there ways in, in cooking or in other ways? I mean, I know you, you do all kinds of things. Um, what ways do you do you create community or participate in community? Once again, because of, the demand is the relation, you know, what ways do you find community in urban spaces? I think this is a good question too. I mean, one of the, there's a couple other people that I want to mention that form part of, you know, the, the, the group of people that I've been thinking with um, over the past few years. And they are Emily Johnson and Karen Recolet and they create fire spaces um, and we think together sometimes about what it means to gather. And Karen developed this term, kinstellation, which I find really provocative. And I try to think with that term as well. So kin plus constellation. And Karen and Emily curate this series of fires in lower Manhattan that they call kinstellatory gatherings. And those spaces are indigenous informed, but community gathering spaces that are around a fire. And so the, we talk a lot about what it means to gather around a fire. And it, it, is, it can be as simple as just bringing people in proximity, that that is how you create community. Um, storytelling that happens there. Sometimes there are readings, sometimes it's music, sometimes it's um, just, just telling a story and being with. So that's that's one thing that I've you know been trying to 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 think about 
um, in creating community here in, in the city, I don't always make it, it's been hard COVID, you know, stuff has, has made it to where, you know, it's hard to gather and everything, but, but then when, when SJ Norman and, and I started working towards um, a kind of digital version of knowledge of wounds, we called the website that we developed itself, the central fire. So when we started to think about how do we create community during times of COVID around digital space, we, we thought, okay, well, we're going to make the website itself the fire and we're going to tell stories around the fire or we're going to, to curate or we're going to kind of organize around sharing knowledge in a, in a time of strife and crisis and um, change. And, but to imagine that space itself as a, as a gathering space rather than a kind of uh, projection space. It wasn't so much, you know, this is where we host the things. It's so much as this is how we're going to try to bring people across Turtle Island and Australia and uh, other parts of you know, the Pacific and, you know, all over the place. And so I think for me as a... Um, over the past few years, I've been able to engage in small and larger scale community organizing activities. Curating knowledge of wounds, co-curating with SJ has been one of those really important things. And then working and collaborating with, with Devin, as I said at the beginning, has Devin Emery has also been one of those things. And then in the space of New York, it's challenging because you've got people from all over. And to be honest, not everyone sees eye to eye about what things mean and how you should do things. And Indians sometimes bring Indian drama. And sometimes that is, that's challenging in urban spaces. And, um, and yet there is always a kind of possibility in urban spaces, I find, in sharing and in finding commonalities with people who come from different communities and different cultures that I personally find very nourishing. So I think for me, one of my, this is also why I identify with Dionysi, is that I'm a person who always kind of finds myself transitioning in between or, or vibrating in between. And, and I, I find myself kind of kinetically bouncing uh, between different cultural groups. And that's, that's fine for me. That's actually who, that's how I see myself. That's, that's part of who I am. And I think that I, that that's an important role for me to play uh, in the world. You know, it's, it's not so much about being a kind of cultural purist so much as understanding that I have a relationship with my own Cherokee community, but also I've grown up around so many different other types of communities that I have relationships with them too. And I think that's also a really beautiful and important and also like super indigenous thing, like, you know, not being closed off to, to other people and, and the way that they think about things. Yeah, that's really interesting. It is, infinitely more easy to objectify an entire <laughs> complex like uh, uh, genetic 
population if you can make them one dimensional. So Indian drama is a fucking gift. It is a gift because it provides so much complexity that that makes it more and more difficult to make one dimensional, you know? And I, I, I'm like, for as much as I hate and struggle with Indian drama, I'm like, thank you. Thank you for contradicting everything that I hold dear as like eternal <laughs> truth, you know, like it's, it's such a gift and you're giving me a headache and that headache is just my brain creating new dendrites and pathways to, to comprehend the world. So thank you for that. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like, it's like the, the Indian drama is like, um, anytime you think you get it, then someone <laughs> comes along and it's like, well, but what about, and then it's like, Oh, <laughs> And then yeah. someone's like, and sovereignty. And you're like, oh. Hey, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> I mean, All yes I to sovereignty. Say, yes, yes to sovereignty. Yeah. But it's like. <laughs> I, I, I can just say, I know, right? <laughs> That's my answer. I know, right? Next, next statement. <laughs> um, well, I, you know. I love, I love all of that. I love that this is, this is speculative. This is speculation. We can't know. We can't know. It's impossible to know. You can participate in knowing. And that's, that's us in the middle of those generations moving towards understanding. So with that, with that, I'm, I'm really interested in, because we have this platform, because this reaches in, in many directions and shares for future generations, potentially, and acknowledging ancestral inspiration, insight, anything that you feel is a contribution to the vessel, a new ingredient for us to, to cook and share with those who need it, those who are hungry, anything you could share would be lovely. There was something you said earlier that I wanted to, that I wrote down that I wanted to come back to, which is, which was when uh, Dionysi dives uh, or when, when some of the creatures dive into the ocean, they hold their breath. Mm. Um, holding your breath is a speculative gesture. And sometimes it seems to me like we're in the midst of things and it feels like we're holding our breath. It feels like, you know, we take a deep breath and we hold it and we don't know when we're going to be able to get back to the surface or when we're going to exhale. But I think we're, when we're in the middle of holding our breath, um, we're also in our center. We're where we are now. And we are approaching, gesturing an emergence, right? Like when you exhale, you get, you, you will have arrived, right? Like, like you will have emerged from the surface and you exhale. So holding, holding your breath means that you're in the middle of it. And so I think, I don't know if this is inspirational so much as um, I, I, I just say, I have this idea that, that sometimes in the world, it feels like we're holding our breath, but that just means that we're in the middle of it. And we're not always going to be in the middle of it. Um, Holding, holding your breath is part of what you have to do when you dive and you come back. Yeah, there is inspiration in that. So um, thank you, Joseph. This was a pleasure. Yeah, 
it's it's really nice to have these conversations and to yeah just kind of back and forth ideas there's so much more to talk about we'll hold that for another time all right thank you wado Thank you.